is Radio Shalom coming to you through Planet FM 104.6. Shalom, Rabbi Brent. Shalom, John. Lovely to be here with you again. And uh, today, Rabbi Brent is going to do the next in his series of Jewish philosophers. And this time we've come to Baruch Spinoza. Mm. So, Rabbi, shoot. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) commence. Spinoza is is a really fascinating character um, and a really controversial character, actually, in, in traditional Jewish circles. Uh, he's he is considered um, to be really one of the three foremost rationalistic philosophers, and not even Jewish philosopher, any philosopher of the 17th century, um, uh, along with uh, Rousseau and and with Leibniz. Um, so. Um, he he was born to a family of, of Portuguese uh, conversos, families who had been forced to convert uh, following the the Spanish um, uh, expulsion and, and Inquisition um, in 1492, and then later in the the 1530s in Portugal there were similar edicts issued, and um, uh, at a certain point. Uh, the um, kingdoms of the Netherlands, uh, the Edict of Ultrich was issued inviting families who had been uh, persecuted in Iberia to come and take up residence in the Netherlands, and uh, Spinoza's family was was one of those. Uh, So he grew up in the household of a a Portuguese merchant, and his uncle had come along as well, uh, and uh, had a traditional uh, Jewish upbringing, uh, as part of um, uh, Congregation Talmud Torah, uh, the Orthodox congregation of uh, the Netherlands. Uh, he was um, considered a, a promising student at a, at a young age, um, but as it happened, uh, he started to, I guess, um, see contradictions and, and problems as he studied, um, looking at the, the comparison between Scripture and how the structure of Jewish life um, was in that day and still continues to be in, in certain ways. Um, and uh, this, this all unfortunately led to the fact that he was uh, among the last uh, Jews that were uh, sanctioned, put under harem excommunication at the age of 23. Uh, so, um, Explain about that. Well, this was the way that uh, Jewish communities used to make sure that, uh, that their amchas stayed in line. And if there were individuals who did not um, abide by the, the ethical and religious um, uh, rules of the, the community... The um, the leadership of the community actually could issue an edict of harem, an, an edict of excommunication, in order to say that no Jew should have contact with this person, no Jew may engage in business with this person, this person's not to be allowed to enter into the grounds of, um, of the synagogue or any of the communal buildings. Um, but but more than that, Spinoza's edict was particularly harsh. You know, there, if you go and, and um, uh, read copies, and it has been translated, um, the the reasons for the excommunic- excommunication have to do with heretical teachings, uh, and um, not action, so to say. Um, and the the and he was so young. He was twenty three years old, and and you know, you look at the, the guys being you know, 
cursed. May God bring curses upon him. Uh, may his name be wiped out and not remembered. Um, of course, we all remember Spinoza's name very well. And uh, some, Better than those that excommunicate. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there, there are many who have called... Um, for the reversal of this this mm. edict of harem, uh, foremost among them, David Ben Gurion, the um, the first prime minister of Israel, said that it was really time that Spinoza um, Spinoza's legacy was you know, cleaned, and he was uh, uh, this this idea of harem that he should have been excommunicated was lifted. So they never withdrew it in his lifetime. They never withdrew it in his lifetime. Mm. There's different theories about why um, the community took this this tract. I mean, one of them is that uh, certainly Spinoza was saying controversial things, such as questioning the Mosaic authorship of the Bible, questioning that the Bible was written by Moses, as dictated by God in Mount Sinai, and handed you know, through generations in the form more or less as it is today. Um, he also uh, uh, denied the the providential aspect of God, that God intervenes in worldly affairs, so to say, um, in any way other than uh, in accordance with the laws of nature that um, uh, Spinoza's philosophy and worldview has a lot to do with God set up the laws of physics, the laws of of nature in our world, and um, the world functions relatively orderly according to these laws. Uh, and um, uh, we should expect that God's uh, presence in the world is also according to these laws, which was problematic for the Orthodox community. But more than that, following these terrible incidents of the expulsions uh, and um, uh, the uh, danger that members of the Jewish community, the Jews, were put in in, in Spain and Portugal in the uh, 15th and 16th centuries, um, there was a real concern that someone who uh, did not stay in line and someone who did not um, uh, practice and observe uh, Judaism in, in uh, the way that the community was permitted to do so could potentially bring the ire of the, um, the secular governments that they lived within. I should think it would be just the other way around. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was a, a time of... of um, uh, deep um, concern and, and uh, paranoia in the Jewish community, and not necessarily paranoia because there there were some pretty strong anti-Semitic forces um, working against Jewish communities, and you know, the, these um, continue to be present in, in our own day. Um, they were especially apparent last century, sadly, in in their their I'd say most horrendous form in the Holocaust. So how did he cope with this? I mean, from the age of 23. His reaction that's that's reported... Which which I have learned is that um, he was really fine with the uh, with the harem with the edict of expulsion. He said um, that uh, it, it was easier for it not to come from him, and and um, it did not force him to do anything that he didn't want to do anyway. So it set him free, more or less. Right, right, and and he did end up um, changing his name. He adopted the name uh, Benedictus de Espinosa, a Latinized version, more or less, of his name, and he, he taught. Um, in a Christian seminary um, and uh, uh, you know, studied with an, a very well-known um, ex-Jesuit uh, whose name was uh, Van den Enden, um, who, uh, um, who later is, is considered 
to, I guess, have some similarities to, to deist thinkers and things like that. Um, but, you know, Spinoza um, found more or less a way to uh, live his life outside of the Jewish community and, and in that regard can be considered uh, probably as the first truly secular Jew, a Jew living in a non-Jewish world. But still adhering to the basic... He wasn't a fan of the ceremonial aspects of Judaism. Not, not so much. Um, he, he never married. He, uh, he never had any sort of um, romantic interests as far as we uh, can say from, from evidence. Um, he lived kind of a quiet life with his research, and, and uh, he was offered a number of um, very prestigious teaching positions around uh, Europe. And each one of these he seemed to, to turn down and, and just prefer his own quiet life. Not quite a hermit, because he was writing? He, he, he did have friends, certainly, mm-hmm. and people came to visit, and he was writing. Um, there's, uh, there are many who really um, respect and, and um, uh, you know, wow Spinoza for living a life that was really in, in concert and in harmony with his philosophy. Um, he, uh, he stood up um, when there was a, a, a ruler in, uh, in the Netherlands, De, De Witt, who was overtaken by a mob and killed and, and uh, decried the thing as, as an awful barbaric act um, and uh, literally had to be restrained. There was some concern that he was going to get up and draw the mob's attention to himself and potentially be killed. So, so he took part in everyday life then, in in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And did he still was his writing still reflective of his Judaism or? Uh, his and writing, I mean the religious. Um, well, if, if we think about Spinoza and, and what his writing represents, first of all, the, he um, his major theological work called the um, uh, the uh, Tractatus Religioso Politico, um, theological Politico, excuse mm-hmm. me, was um, uh, written in sixteen seventy. Um, and it it reflected a lot of these earlier allegations that were said about things he was teaching um, uh, and really took further actually some previous um, uh, observances by, by none other than Abraham Ibn Ezra, an earlier mm-hmm. philosopher of the 12th century, um, who noticed some incongruencies in the, the biblical text but never fully explicated what they were. Um, uh, Ibn Ezra is, is secretive on these things and, and um, uh, says, you know, when he notices in, in chapter 12 of Genesis, for example, that there's this statement, uh, at that time the Canaanites were in the land and says, well, at that time the Canaanites were in the land. What, what does that mean the Canaanites were in the land? It, you know, it seemed to us as literary critics that it means that someone's writing this at a time when Canaanites are not in the land. So how could this have you know, been written with the post-knowledge that it doesn't work out logically? And, and, and Ibn Ezra's response was he wrote um, uh, two words. He wrote, Hachamim Yavin, the wise ones will know. 
very mysterious. Didn't say anything more than that. And Spinoza dives right into this sort of comment, another one that appears in the beginning of, of um, uh, Deuteronomy, uh, and, and says, look at these things. These things tell us that these accounts, this scripture was written at a time other than what it's stating. There's something hidden here. There's something concealed. And, and in a way, uh, that work, the Tractatus, gave birth to biblical criticism in the modern world as we, we know it, where um, uh, there's quite a bit of research into who wrote the Bible, what its content is, and, and you know, how it, um, it uh, in, in was put together as a, um, as a canon and what was brought in and what was excluded. Uh, philosophically, um, he, he, well, he authored a book called The, the Ethics, um, uh, a very, very challenging work that actually was only published posthumously. He died at the age of 45, probably from tuberculosis. We're not exactly sure, but some sort of lung picture. So he died very young. And um, when he died, it was found this so he work. Only he had twenty something years. Yeah, he was excommunicated at twenty mm. twenty three. Um, seven years before he died, he wrote mm. the, the Tractatus. He's he's written other essays and, what did and he, works. What language did he write it in? Primarily Latin. Primarily right. Latin, which was a, a language he learned as an adult. Uh, he he so also. So if he went to a Jesuit or was learning with them, mm-hmm. they they were using Latin. Uh, as as we, compared to the like his his mother tongue was Portuguese. Yeah, he so probably knew Dutch from living in the Netherlands. Yeah. he studied Hebrew when he was at Cheder. Yeah, um, and he would have learned Latin as an adult, uh, and among other languages, he probably knew French as well. Um, so. Uh, you know, this this man was was pretty intelligent and pretty sharp and and understood languages and and um, uh, found it best. He actually authored the Tractatus anonymously, and only later uh, did it come out that he actually mm-hmm. wrote this book. But he probably wrote it in Latin somewhat as well because um, uh, you know, he was going to be saying some things that would be considered heretical for the time. So he wrote on the on the Old Testament. He wrote on the Old Testament and he did write on the, the, the New Testament mm-hmm. as well. Um, the Old Testament, is, as we refer to in Jewish circles, mm-hmm. is just the Hebrew Bible. And mm-hmm. it's, it's slightly different in configuration than the Old Testament as, it, um, as it's put together um, for, for Christian mm-hmm. uh, practitioners of the Christian faith. Um, the, the New Testament, the issues that, that Spinoza identified um, most clearly were that uh, the works of the New Testament, which are primarily in Greek, um, we, we don't have, for many of them, we know that Greek is not the original language that they were written in, and, and yet we don't have copies of them written in the original language, which creates all kinds of questions about you know, if these works were translated, are they you know, conveying what their author intended in them um, uh, with uh, fidelity? In in terms of his philosophical works, I'd, I'd started to talk about the ethics that was written, and, and um, uh, Spinoza authored um, uh, this book um, with a, a mind towards Euclid's geometry, and um, uh, approached in a way such that when he created the, the first chapters of this book, he would define all of his terms: um, what is God, what is an attribute, what. Um, you know, what are the in mathematical terms. Exactly. And then he'd use them later and he constructed it very much like the premises of a mathematical argument. And, and uh, once he was approached and, and um, asked 
you know, how are you confident that your, your philosophy is correct? And he said, I'm confident that my philosophy is correct, just as you should be confident and know with absolute truth that the sum of the angles of a triangle are two right angles. <laughs> um, n- nevertheless, there, there are uh, certainly criticisms and questions that arose about his ethics and, and Leibniz, um, one of his contemporaries, one of the three people I mentioned as being the three great rationalist philosophers of the 17th century, is among those that um, – was heavily critical of his work. So where did he study then that he, mm. you know, had this razor-sharp mind that wanted logic? Well, he, he he claims to be an autodidact of sorts, a self-taught man. Right. Um, certainly he, he did study uh, Torah and Talmud and rabbinic text in, in Hader, although he never made it into their advanced classes as far as we know. Um, and and then he spent um, a, a fair bit of time with this uh, this ex Jesuit um, Van, uh, Van den Eden. Um, Did you find him a kindred spirit? Well, I, he was Van den Eden was also someone who's who was free thinking, um, and uh, there were. St- heterodox controversies that emerged out of his own writing so that his books were actually banned by the church. Um, so kindred in that they, they both took ire from established religion for sure. Right. Um, they must have been glad to find each other. But I should imagine at that time it was quite dangerous to uh, voice contra opinions sure i mean this was the the very this was this was on the cusp of the transition from the medieval world into the the modern world um it's the the same time that you're um starting to uh, see a lot of the political theories you know written that would inspire the the american revolution and and later the french revolution um, this is a, uh, a very dynamic time when it, it comes to philosophy and the, the way of the world. Um, and uh, in terms of Spinoza's lasting influence, uh, biblical criticism, the, the entire field of looking at the Bible critically and, and analyzing it as one would a, a work of ancient literature, uh, is something that's accepted, accepted in, in most um, religious circles, except for those that are fundamentalist and... and um, literal uh, translation. <laughs> well, literal translation, believing that, that the, the Bible is authentic and, and it shouldn't be questioned. Um, mainstream religions of today, uh, Christianity, as well as my own Judaism, uh, accept that uh, biblical criticism has uh, validity, and uh, it's it's part of our seminary education, um, well incorporated into it. Uh, for um, for biblical studies, it's part of uh, both the Masorti, the conservative, and um, the reformer progressive training that happens around the world, and and um, uh, even Orthodox Judaism uses textual criticism when it comes to looking at rabbinic texts. Well, if you, you know, through the years, commentaries have been written by various thinkers and rabbis and so on. Were they all non-critical? Were they all accepting or just looking at different interpretations? Mm. Or were they part critical or questioning rather than critical? Well, the... um, 
the, the manner which biblical criticism approaches textual study is fundamentally different than what um, a rabbinic inquiry does to texts. Uh, if, if we look at what um, uh, rabbinic works of Midrash, um, uh, Dan Chuma, all these in, important works that contribute to our understanding um, and interpretation of biblical texts and, and contain um, many glosses into areas of the Bible that uh, don't fully spell out what's going on. So, for example, there's the famous story of the smashing of the idols um, by Abraham and his father's idol workshop. Uh, and that whole story um, is exclusively found within Midrash. There's no place in the Bible that, that it exists. Uh, so rabbinic um, commentaries look to the Bible in a way that they want to uh, explain it and its content so that it can give relevance and meaning to uh, either the lives of its contemporaries or an understanding of, of what the meaning of the revelation was. Uh, biblical criticism does things quite differently. It takes a scientific lens and um, looks for uh, sort of chiasms in the text and, and um, repetitions and uh, the use of different language and terminology to determine where are there different authors that, that appear in the text? Is this a continuous text or has it been redacted? Um, it, to what extent is it edited? Um, to what extent has it been harmon- um, harmonized with, with each other? And, and uh, it, it, narratively, is it in sequence? Um, these, these kinds of questions can yield answers that are surprising and and today, it's commonly understood by mainstream biblical criticism that the, the Bible um, was uh, authored over many centuries, some scholars believing it to not have started until very late, actually, um, but that uh, uh, these books were redacted and um, codified and pulled together over time uh, and eventually put into a codex so that um, the, the books that we have uh, today which traditional religion will tell us are divine revelation mm-hmm. from God and not a word or a letter has changed since then. It's simply not true. And, and uh, uh, in that sense, we have discovered with archaeology, you know, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls today. And if we look at comparing copies of, for example, the book of Isaiah from the Dead Sea Scrolls with the book of Isaiah we have today, there are some pretty important differences in uh, words, in the way things are spelled, in sections that have been um, omitted or added since uh, um, that text back then, which tells us there's different versions of the Bible, which tells us that um, uh, it's not quite as simple as um, the medieval mind would have wanted to know. And uh, the modern mind is much more aware of these discrepancies and congruencies and and contradictions that exist therein. And uh, Spinoza is really the person we have to thank for first starting us to look towards that insight. So I think I often wondered, because today we know so much more about the world than they did Mm. then, so it's not surprising but that that people were still inquiring at at that time. Mm. So he lived a lonely life, but all in his head. (laughs) <laughs> I I don't know that he would think um, or say that he was lonely. I mean, if I have to imagine Spinoza, I'd say that uh, he was driven by a particular vision and a particular understanding um, and uh, that he was fulfilled 
to the extent that he was able to do his research and um, uh, able to find people of like conscience. But he was trying to prod, if you like, the <laughs> Well, there's, the quite, there's quite a bit of prodding there, and there, there is certainly some antagonization, mm-hmm. yes. And he doesn't have as many followers as, say, uh, Maimonides does to this day. Um, well, we talked about Maimonides also had his controversies, but uh, certainly Spinoza is someone who's who's still um, considered outside the fold, uh, certainly, of traditional Judaism. And, um, uh, and some of the conclusions he reached in his philosophy um, are quite problematic, but we haven't got into that so much in, in this talk here. The question is, do you want to go into that? <laughs> At a, some future we can, but we may have to save it till next time. <laughs> okay. Um, what do you think his, his influence is today? You know, are there study circles like there are my, on Maimonides? Are they, you know, is he discussed or is it just part of say rabbinical learning to to touch or for those people who are doing philosophy well no I think its influence is much greater in the philosophic world than it is in the Jewish world Mm -hmm. Um, Hume uh, who would live after him would say that there's two types of philosophers there's philosophers who are Spinozian and there's philosophers who are not (laughs) philosophers really at all Um, the mind for for inquiry and the way that he methodically looked at this um, uh, really has semblances of, of someone like Wittgenstein who would come much later um, and uh, look with a critical eye towards analytic philosophy and um, okay, so he he influenced philosophers of the future oh absolutely absolutely yeah mm. and. I just wondered if also he is part of what we look at as a Jewish philosopher because of what he did there, but if he was also teaching amongst Christians and he was influenced with the Jesuits, is he also read and revered in the non-Jewish community as um, a philosopher? I, I think that uh, he pro- probably finds his best audience in, in proper philosophy, which is not not religious, mm-hmm. but um, uh, inquiry. His um, his philosophy is is controversial in a lot of ways to um, people who want to hold traditional religious uh, theologies. Um, he he really believes, as, as we talked before. Uh, that God uh, functions according to these rules which have been established, the, these rules of nature and of, of physics, and, and um, uh, believes that, that God is the essence or the substance of the, the universe. He's um, natura uh, naturis. He's, he's uh, found within nature. Um, so to, to that extent, um, uh, one of the conclusions that Spinoza draws is all of the ethical um, uh, doctrines of Scripture are things that uh, can be arrived at rationally, just through pure rational inquiry. Um, and um, revelation is not required at all uh, to the extent that you know this is this is so extreme. Spinoza says things like the the mind of the biblical Israelites was so primitive that it needed revelation and it needed the the idea that there was 
divine reward and punishment based on actions. Um, and it needed these elaborate stories and ideas in order to be able uh, to keep order, to keep peace, to keep harmony in, in the biblical world that um, it's, it's quite condescending, actually, when you think about it, um, that uh, these people who lived in the Bible had not acquired the tools of rational thought. Uh, and someone who did have those tools of rational thought, well, religion in an organized and um, symbolic way was really of no use to them. So it really was that it was needed by the people at that time in order to to live and and not tear each other to pieces. And Spinoza's <laughs> perspective is is that uh, you know religion was a, a means of keeping order and control in society. He wouldn't go as far as Marx would later to say that religion is the opium of the masses, um, but but certainly uh, um, you know, Marx, in his own right, was heavily influenced by Spinoza. If we're talking about people who were influenced, so he he did have a a extremely important impact on um, modern philosophy and the modern world, and and. Uh, challenged um, many of our notions about religion some uh, more successfully than others but in any case those that he did challenge successfully um, uh, he's been seen uh, vindicated in, in many circumstances and so I think that really today if we're going to be serious and thoughtful in the way that we approach our own religious lives um, we can't afford to ignore Spinoza well, thank you, Rabbi, very much, and uh, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm. Don't forget to listen next Sunday when the Rabbi will be telling us about Purim. <laughs>